Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by one of our favorites, Dr. Jason Fung, who we've interviewed twice for his previous books, The Obesity Code and The Diabetes Code. Uh, and the fasting solution, or maybe just two of those we did. But he's got a new book now, which is the longevity solution. We're going to talk about that today. So Dr. Fung is a nephrologist, and he's based in uh, Canada. And I just love him because he's just so down to earth, communicates very effectively, and just gives practical solutions. So welcome, and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Fung. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be back. Yeah. So uh, what was the motivation? Oh, actually, I neglected to mention that you wrote this, co-wrote this book with uh, my last uh, book's co-author, which is Dr. James D. Nicola Antonio. So the, right. the, the previous author or the, the author of his previous book was uh, uh, the, salt, the Salt Fix or the Salt Solution. The Salt Fix. I salt think. Fix, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what, what, what motivated you to write the book? Yeah, we were talking, um, I was talking with James about sort of um, how to tie this all together. And he had a good idea. He was going to talk about, you know, he's already talked about salt in his book, The Salt Fix. And with your book, he talked about sort of good fats and bad fats and super fuel. And he thought it'd be a great idea to sort of tie everything together in terms of, uh, you know, the real the dietary determinants of longevity. So in terms of longevity or healthy aging, we, there's lots of determinants and it's not all dietary. So there's lots of important things, family and social supports and dealing with stress and all these sort of things. So, but we're not, we're not really in a good position to deal with them, but there's a lot of dietary uh, determinants of good health. And we wanted to go into some of them and sort of tie that all together and put it in an easy um, package that people can understand. So the things that we go into, we, we touch on salt and we touch on sort of the, the best types of fats to eat. Um, and then, um, you know, I helped him with some of the dietary stuff in terms of fasting, the, the literature about calorie restriction and increased longevity with that. And then we talk about protein there. We spend a good section of the book talking about protein uh, because that's sort of the things we haven't talked about. We talked about fast, we talked about carbohydrates, uh, but we hadn't talked about protein. And then sort of different types of protein, animal versus plant protein, for example, and uh, how much protein. Uh, and these are really, really important questions because there's so much uh, out there um, and you don't know who to believe. So some people say, oh, you should eat a lot of protein. And other people, oh, well, you shouldn't eat any protein. And where's the truth? The truth is it typically is fall somewhere in between. And it really depends on your situation. If you're an uh, athlete who you know, is working out all the time, then you may require more protein. And if you're not, then you probably don't. So it goes into all those sort of stuff. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because from my review of the book, I think that is probably the single most valuable piece of information in the book is this protein issue because there's so much confusion about it. And let me preface that. And I was confused too a few years ago because we learned about mTOR, mammalian targeted rapamycin, or what's now more commonly called as mechanistic targeted rapamycin. Very important pathway that's responsible for 
controlling autophagy. So if you inhibit mTOR, you activate autophagy, which is a really good thing. So there was this fear about eating too much protein. And I made the mistake of not eating enough because of the issue that you, you talk about in the book and discuss, which is you need, your protein needs increase as you age because you have to counteract that progressive loss of muscle mass. So why don't you go into that? Because it's just fascinating. Maybe get some of the details with respect to the quantities of protein that's, that's necessary. Yeah, and this is the really exciting sort of part is the, this whole discovery of mTOR. And um, what it is basically is it's a nutrient sensor. So if you think about insulin, it senses when you take carbohydrates, protein too, but predominantly carbohydrates. So when you take carbohydrates, insulin goes up, and then your body responds in all kinds of different ways. Um, well, your body has a similar mechanism um, called mTOR, but that's not for carbohydrates, it's mostly for protein. And different proteins, sort of animal proteins, for example, will stimulate it more than others, or some things like branched-chain amino acids, which people use to sort of bulk up, like weightlifters often take supplements and stuff, they do it. And, and the reason is that mTOR, it senses the availability of protein and increases these sort of growth pathways. So if you're trying to increase muscle like bodybuilders will, for example, then this might be a very good thing. On the other hand, we talk about how it impacts aging. So aging is, and we talk about the different theories of aging. And one of the real um, interesting theories of aging is that there's a sort of trade-off between the growth program and the longevity program. That is, if you grow, um, it's actually the same pathway as aging. So whether it's good or bad depends on sort of your age. So when you're young, you want to grow. So you activate all these growth pathways. But as you get older, if you keep revving that sort of growth engine, it's just going to burn out. So just like your car engine, revving it, it's great if you want to go fast. But if, on the other hand, you want to keep that car for a long time, you actually don't want to rev it that much. So things change as you go along. So during sort of early adulthood, childhood, you want that growth um, uh, program to go forward, but that growth program is intrinsically at odds with the longevity program. So after a certain point, you may want to sort of cut things back. And that's um, sort of the, the understanding of mTOR. mTOR drives all this growth, but then as you get older, you wind up with diseases of too much growth. That is, if you think about a lot of the chronic diseases that we deal with today, they're not because people haven't grown enough. It's actually because there's too much growth. Obesity is too much growth. Cancer is too much growth. Atherosclerosis, which is the sort of hardening of the arteries and the blockages you get in the arteries, is really too much growth. Alzheimer's disease, for example, is too much of this protein that's clogging up the brain. So there's all these diseases, these chronic metabolic diseases, where increasing the growth pathway, which is the same as the longevity aging pathway, is not good. So uh, at some point, you want to slow it down. But as you get older, your, your body actually becomes resistant to some of these um, growth pathways. Therefore, you actually need to take a little bit more. So if you're elderly and you're at risk of falls, for example, then taking more protein might be a good thing. And this is one of the reasons that protein is so hard to sort of understand because everybody's so different, right? You could take a 80-year-old who's frail and you might say, you know, you actually need to take more protein because you have resistance to, to that, the, 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 the growth pathways and we want you to gain muscle. And then, of course, you know, uh, exercising and stuff is, is important for that as well. But that's, that's where things are sort of, um, 
you know, really, really tricky sometimes. So when people say, oh, protein is good or protein is bad, well, it's, it's not really that simple. And it's really hard to give just a simple answer to say you should eat more protein or you should eat less protein or you should eat animal protein or you should eat plant protein, for example. It's, it really, you have to look at your own situation. Okay, so let's get into some of the specific recommendations, which are usually given in grams per kilogram, uh, and typically ideal, I think, lean of lean body mass. So, a uh, seventy kilogram kilogram person is about, I believe, one hundred and fifty five pounds. So, can you discuss some of the recommendations for uh, the different age groups? Yeah. So, if you look at children, as uh, saying, you generally want higher protein needs because. The body has to incorporate all this protein. So if you think about a baby, it starts at like seven or eight pounds and it has to grow to like 150 pounds, for example. So it has to incorporate all that. And proteins are going to be very important. So um, as a baseline, you can look at what the recommended daily allowance is for the United States. So they, they publish these uh, sort of recommendations of how much people should take. We usually do grams per kilogram of lean mass because if you have a lot of adipose tissue, there's not a lot of protein requirement. Like if you have an extra 50 pounds of body fat, you don't need a lot of protein to maintain that fat. That's sort of storage. So that's why we usually go by uh, lean body weight. So even if you're very overweight, you, you don't count that. You count just the lean body mass. Um, so then what you do is you, if you look at children, they're up in the two grams per kilogram, the recommended, sorry, the recommended daily allowance is 0 0.8. That's the, the sort of, if you go to any standard textbook, that's sort of what you get. So for a uh, 70 kilogram man, you're talking about 50 grams, uh, 56 grams of, um, uh, protein per day. But that's now, lean body mass, 70 kilograms lean, of lean body exactly. mass lean body mass. So that's the sort of uh, baseline. If you look at children, you actually want to be a bit above that. So uh, very young children, you may get even up to two grams uh, per kilogram per day. And then as they get towards adulthood, you're trying to fall back more towards the 0 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. As you get into adulthood, that's when you want to sort of get back sort of into that 0 0.8, 0 0.6 to 0 0.8. If you look at how the 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 guidelines came up with 0 0.8. It's actually a very interesting story. What they did in the, I think the 60s or something, is that uh, they took a bunch of healthy adults, so people who had nothing wrong with them, and said, how much protein do you eat? And they calculated it. And it came out to 0 0.6 grams per kilogram per day. So that was what healthy people were eating. And then they didn't have any idea that, well, too much protein could actually be bad. They thought there's no way it could be bad. Protein is good. So then they just added two standard deviations to that. So that came out to 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. So at 0 0.8 grams per kilo per day, uh, about 90%, more than 90% of the population was eating less than that at the time they made those recommendations. Um, so it's actually not a low protein diet, it's a pretty adequate or high-ish because most people remember we're averaging 0.6. Uh, so, so, so that's why I think that's a pretty good, um, that's a pretty good um, thing for adults to take. Now, if you are a bodybuilder, you might want to take a bit more. So you're getting up into the one gram, 1.2 grams per kilo per day. And interestingly enough, endurance athletes actually have the highest um, requirements for protein. So you want to get up into the 1.5 even. So that's a little counterintuitive too, because you 
think of bodybuilders primarily as needing it, not long distance runners, but it turns out the long distance runner actually needs far more than the, um, the weightlifter or the bodybuilder. Um, and then, uh, you know, as you get into older adulthood, uh, so elderly uh, people, you basically want to stay in that higher range, like 0.8. And because the body actually starts to become a little bit resistant to the growth mechanisms to maintain health, you might actually want to go up a little bit after that. So adulthood, you kind of fall into this little lull, and then you may want to take a little bit more as you get older. Okay. So the challenge here is to optimize the whole system and mTOR being key because uh, as you get older, we mentioned you have this weight, this muscle loss, which is an sort of inevitable consequence of age. But then you also have damaged cells and cell parts that need to be removed by the process called autophagy. So it's this fine balance. So, you know, it seems to me, and I don't know that you discuss this in your book, but I'd like you to discuss it now, is the possibility of having a hybrid program where you go and integrated with this intermittent fasting, which we'll talk about, where you go through days, one or two days a week, where you have very low protein or relatively low, below the recommendation. And then when you're doing the strength training to give your muscles the catalyst to activate that muscle growth, then you have more, maybe 1.5 grams per, per kilogram. You know, so you know, a typical normal male, be instead of 70 grams of protein a day, you go to 100, 110 or so. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So if you look at the literature on longevity, like how long people live, the only sort of um, really well-established thing that makes people live longer is calorie restriction, but it's very hard to do. So one of the things is to cycle it back and forth so that on average, you might be taking less, but some days you're taking sort of very little and some days you're taking a lot. And I think that's actually how people were actually meant to live. If you look at, you know, uh, people in the, uh, you know, sort of caveman days, it's not like every day a certain amount of food is available all the time from the refrigerator. It, it, you know, when there's food, you have to eat. And when there's no food, then there's nothing to eat. And I think it makes a lot of sense because it's, it's this sort of growth versus longevity uh, paradigm. So if you're always eating the same thing, then you're not going to be able to get that balance right. Because you're either sort of in a pro-growth, but that's also a pro-aging sort of pathway. So what you want to do is really want to go in between the two. So one, some days you're going to take a lot, and that will stimulate your mTOR as well as insulin, for example, and put you in this sort of growth uh, pattern. And then you'll have days where your mTOR is going to be driven down to like very low. And those are the days your body's going to go into more of a survival mode, if you will. So that's going to activate autophagy. So when you eat protein, for example, mTOR, which is a nutrient sensor, goes up and it basically just shuts off autophagy. And autophagy is this sort of cellular recycling process. And it's very important for aging because it's sort of a rejuvenating cycle for your cells. So this uh, is very topical because the 2016 Nobel Prize in Medicine was uh, um, given to a Japanese researcher who did a lot of the early research into the mechanisms of autophagy. And it turns out that when you don't have, when mTOR is very low, then your body will start to break down some of the subcellular parts. 
And those that are going to be broken down first are those sort of old or damaged parts. So you're going to get rid of them all. And everybody thinks, oh, breaking down protein, that's so bad. But it's not because that's sort of the first step in sort of renewing yourself. You got to get rid of all the old stuff and then you got to get a new, you know, rebuild the new things. And that's why it's important to cycle it because it's not the same thing all the time. It's like if you think about renovating a house or you have a teardown or whatever, if you got your house because you want to renovate it, the first thing you do is rip everything out, get a big dumpster and throw it out. That's the same with the body. So you ought to shut everything down, stimulate, excuse me, stimulate the autophagy, get rid of all the crap that was there then you rebuild. And that's the beauty of the cycle, which is that you stimulate autophagy, get rid of all the old stuff, then you induce mTOR, and then you rebuild your new stuff, but only the stuff that you need. So any of the old stuff that you didn't need, these old growth pathways and stuff, you don't use them. And that's, that's why it's so important to cycle. And, and, and for so long, we've been told, you know, and, and, and all our recommendations, dietary recommendations are flawed in that way, because it sort of presumes that you should eat the same amount every day. Like, look, oh, you should eat 2,000 calories. Then you should eat, you know, 50% carbs. You know, I don't think so. But you should eat 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. As if the optimal way to do it is to take exactly 56 grams of protein each and every day. It's like, I don't think that's actually optimal at all. And I think you should one day maybe take 100 and the next day zero. I think that's actually much better because you're going to, on the day you take zero, get rid of all your old stuff, all your old cells, your old uh, organelles. And then on the day you're taking 100 grams, you're going to rebuild all the new stuff so it's not old stuff that's cluttering up your, your body. Okay, thanks for laying the framework for that. And then I definitely want to go deeper in this because clearly the next best the next most important thing to discuss would be the, the, the intermittent calorie restriction. But before we go there, I want to do a little deeper dive on mTOR because and get your perspective on it because there's other ways that you could augment mTOR or increase it or in other ways which you can decrease it other than food intake. Obviously, the branched-chain amino acids, but even things like a lot of people will take glutamine as a supplement. And glutamine as an amino acid can actually activate mTOR, as can vitamin, methyl B, methylfolate or vitamin B12. So the, you know these are things. Anything, and you think it's think about it. It's not that unusual because these are the supplements that are given to pregnant women for building their baby's body and growth. Yeah. And anything that's going to build that is going to likely activate mTOR, and that's a good thing. But so, and then there's polyphenols which can actually suppress or, or deactivate mTOR. Things like uh, curcumin and uh, fisetin and 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 uh, many other polyphenols, EGCG that can do that. So why don't you comment on that and we'll, then we'll go dive deep into yeah. the fasting. Yeah, that's a great point because, you know, the way our book is sort of set out is exactly that way. So there are things, certain things that you should really restrict. That is, you know, with the intermittent fasting, with the protein and so on, you, you, you want to, you know, sort of cut back on those. But there are other things that you can take which are really great that can increase your longevity, increase your health, and they impact, you know, EC, <coughs> EGCG, sorry, that you mentioned, which is in green tea. And then we talk about some of these things that actually may help with longevity uh, that you should take more of. And 
what we focus on is not the sort of latest and greatest sort of uh, supplement sort of, uh, you know, people, these things always get, give everybody a bad name, like fad diets and stuff or green coffee or, you know, raspberry ketones, the sort of latest and greatest supplement or, you know, acai berries. And it's like, they're great, but they're not like going to cure everything. Right. So what we focus on instead is some of the stuff that's, really been around for a long time we're not we're, we're so, so things like tea green tea coffee red wine for example uh salt magnesium some of these sort of things that are really really important for staying healthy but they're sort of proven over time that is it's hard to find anybody who thinks green tea is really bad for you uh, but now the science is starting to be there so we really dig into the science of polyphenols such as uh, ECGC, which is, uh, you know, really important. For example, there's all kinds of studies that link EC, uh, EGCG to cancer, for example, and longevity um, in Japan, for example, they drink a lot of green tea and um, other things such as coffee. There's studies on how coffee are, is related to diabetes and you know, we find that instead of being really harmful, it actually turns out to be quite beneficial. Red wine, of course, the whole story was very interesting as well, because for for a long, long time, um, the uh, the ancient Greeks and so on thought that wine, and they mostly drank red wine, was very, very healthy. So if you read the Hippocrates, for example, he's an ancient Greek physician, often called the father of modern medicine. He thought was like great and then we fell into this period um, in, around prohibition where everybody thought that alcohol was really bad um, because there are side effects and the point is that if you take anything in excess then it can be very harmful so then we got into this period where we thought abstinence from alcohol was actually super healthy and then sometime in the I think it was around the 70s um, you know they're doing this study uh, looking at determinants of well-being and what was really really uh, a total sort of surprise was that they found that red wine was actually protective against you know dying and heart heart disease and now we've kind of come back this full circle and now we're talking again about how a glass of wine with dinner you know uh, it can be actually a very very healthy thing so this is probably, again, to do with the resveratrol, with the polyphenol, some of the things that you find in red wine, as opposed to some of the other spirits that might be really beneficial for you. Okay, good. Yeah, and the other, finishing up on the polyphenols, that's one of the reasons why organic coffee, not loaded with toxins, is so useful, because it has magnificent polyphenols, and there is just chocolate, and then the most common polyphenol in fruits and vegetables was this quercetin, and they're do, doing a lot of interesting things with quercetin now. But I want to go into the fasting. You're really well known for being an expert in fasting, and uh, in fact, you wrote the guide, the complete guide to fasting, which was really inspirational for me, and you really served as a mentor to help when I just was learning about this as a powerful tool. So I want to go into that now because it, it appears to me from my review and personal applications that this is probably one of the most important tools that you can use to stay healthy, that everyone can use. Because Sachin Panda in his book, The Circadian Code, I think it was independent research, he identified that 
90% of the public eat calories more than 12, eat food more than 12 hours a day. 90%, nine out of 10 people. That is just crazy. So this compressed eating window was one of the most important things to do. No question about it. And, and I want to congratulate you on your case report in British Medical Journal. I use it all the time when I lecture and reference this, is that you had those three patients with the type 2 diabetes were on insulin for 10 years. That you just fixed them by compressing their eating window. Yeah. So why don't you talk about that? Then we'll go into more details of intermittent fasting. Yeah, I think it's it's really important. So something like so so we published three cases. So I have this intensive dietary management program, the IDM program, and um, it started about five or six years ago. And a couple of the people did very well. So it took us a while to get it published. But um, there are three cases of these guys. They had about twenty years of type two diabetes. They're all on insulin and uh, big doses, like eighty units, a hundred units of insulin, and when we started them on, we started them on a 24-hour fast three times a week um, under medical supervision, of course, because they were taking a lot of medication. That was three times a week? Three times a week, yeah. Okay. Uh, but we monitored them very closely because, of course, we have to adjust their medications. And, you know, it was, it was stunning because the, the time it took to get off of the insulin was between 5 and 18 days. It's like <laughs> the longest it took that, that the, the person was 18 days. He had been on insulin for like five years, right? And he had been told that he'd be on for the rest of his life. This was like a 47-year-old or something like that. It's like, come on. So this guy thought he was going to be taking insulin for the next 30 years. We got him off of everything in 18 days. And we still follow those three. It's now, you know, we still have, we now have patients out five six years and they're still off of all their medications they manage it with the diet and this is the point that if you have a disease which causes so much disability type 2 diabetes you can allow your body to simply use up that excess sugar it's like the body has too much sugar that's the whole disease so don't eat and allow your body to burn it off now you have a completely free solution um, and a completely Actually, natural less solution. Free. Less than free. Less than free. <laughs> That's right. You save all that money on that food. And it doesn't take time. It saves you time as well. You don't have to cook. You don't have to eat, all that sort of thing. <laughs> um, but it, it's incredible because you think, okay, who are the people that really need this? Well, guess what? It affects uh, poor people more than rich people, for example. It affects all these uh, indigenous populations, you know, where they're highly disadvantaged because they're eating highly processed food. They're not eating grass-fed beef. It's expensive. They're not eating, you know, organic food because it's expensive. Like, there's no question those are better, but they can't afford them. So here's a free solution for them that they can take charge of their own health against this disease, which prediabetes and diabetes now affects more than 50% of the adult American population. So that's stunning. So almost everybody can benefit from this. And the, and the weird part, other than, you know, it's, it's, it's powerful, it's free, it's available, and it's been used for thousands of years. I'm like, I don't know of anything that could be better than that for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. And, uh, you know, it, it turns out that there's all kinds of other benefits in terms of intermittent fasting and getting back to, um, you know, the time-restricted eating question, uh, you know, some of the research shows that the average person was actually eating 
um, I think it was 14 hours and uh, 45 minutes per day. It's like, whoa, like if you start eating breakfast at 8 a.m., you don't stop till 10.45 p.m. on average. This is the average American. That is, that is unbelievable. And the point is, the, the point is exactly what you said. It's a cycle. Okay, so you have to put your body in a fed state. That is, you eat and, you know, your insulin goes up, your mTOR goes up, but then you have to fast. So there's a daily cycle that we're not respecting. There's a fed state, there's a fasted state. You put food into your body, you store food energy, then you use it, you get it out. If you don't ever use that energy that you're putting into your body, you're just going to store it and then it makes you sick. But it's the same cycle that plays out. And that's where the word breakfast comes in. It implies that you have to fast. You can't break a fast if you're not fasting. So you go back to the 60s. Well, people finish eating at 6 p.m., 7 p.m. They didn't eat again until 7 a.m., 8 a.m. So you've got a natural 12, 13-hour fasting period. Every single day, you eat over 10 to 12 hours, and you fast for 12 to 14 hours. We've totally switched that around. Now we're eating from the moment we get up. And, and, and the weird part is that if you don't eat like as soon as you get up, some nutritionist is going to say, oh, you got to eat, you got to eat, you got to eat. Why? To lose weight. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's <laughs> not going to work, right? If you're not hungry, the minute you get up, you don't have to stuff a muffin in your mouth. That's not going to make you healthier or better. So this is the point that it's a natural cycle and you got to respect that cycle. And we've lost that with this sort of hysteria to say, oh, you have to eat the moment you get up, then don't let a moment go by where you're not putting food in your mouth, right? Oh, you need a mid-morning snack, you need an after-school snack, you need a bedtime snack, you need a snack here, snack there, snack there. It's like, that's, that's crazy. Like, it, it, it makes no sense at all. And, then, and that's the sort of key to uh, sort of good health is, 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 is getting this cycle back in, in, in order. So you're still in the trenches. You see patients active and regularly in your clinic up in Toronto. And I'd like to get your feedback on it, uh, with respect to the length of time that the intermittent fast should be. With, and, I, and if it should be done every day, which I believe it should be. So we, we, I said earlier, 90% of people are eating more than 12 hours. So clearly eating less than 12 hours is a good start. And you're yeah. doing much better than everyone. But you know, there's a range and you discuss it in your book, you know, 12 to 14, 14 to 16, 16 to 18. I happen to be of the opinion of the 16 to 18 might be the sweet spot because you're going to deplete your glycogen stores in your liver more and suppress mTOR and activate autophagy better. Not really well, but better. And we'll talk about the, the next step in intermittent fasting. But what, what do you believe is the sweet spot for most people for time-restricted eating? I, I totally agree with you. I think that um, somewhere around 12 to 14 hours is sort of a baseline. I think that that's the sort of, um, you know, go back to the 70s and 12 to 14 hours is um, exactly uh, what, what people did automatically, right? You didn't have to, it didn't take willpower to, to do that because that's what everybody did. That's how you were raised. That's what your mother did. That's what your husband or wife did. That's what your kids did. So everybody gets 12 to 14 hours uh, right off the bat. Then I think the next uh, step up is somewhere around 16 to 18 hours. And that's so easy to do once you get used to it. 
it's just so easy and you can build that right into your uh, day without sort of any problems at all and I think that's that's where you're exactly right so your glycogen stores last uh, about say 24 hours but if you're really following a lower carbohydrate diet of course you're not going to build up those glycogen reserves and and therefore 16 18 hours you're going to get down to that point remember when you get down and you're, you've gotten rid of a lot of those glycogen reserves then your body's going to go into this sort of mode where you're going to go into gluconeogenesis which is starting to break some of the the proteins down which everybody thinks is bad but i actually think it's a highly beneficial thing because you're you will rebuild that and and then you start to get into burning fat so um that's that's really where you want to be on a on a daily basis 16 to 18 and then allows you to sort of just jump out into the 20 you know 20 24 hour range without any difficulty if you're sort of at that baseline already and i, I tell you you know so many people like colleagues like we have a lot of patients and it takes a, a bit of work but a lot of colleagues um like doctors um they all come to me and they go you know this is like super super easy like after they lose like 50 pounds right then they go you know i just skip breakfast and then uh, a couple times a week i skip lunch so you're getting 16 hours and then you're jumping into 24 or 23 hours say uh two three times a week but it almost feels effortless because you know they go you know, I used to do this all the time as a medical student, right? They're just getting back to that and they feel good. And because they understand the physiology, they're like, oh yeah, my sugars got better. And, you know, it's, it's just, that's, I think the, the definite thing. So the, the fasting period can vary too. And that's, that's the beauty. If you're, if you're like, it's the holidays, for example, and you don't want to fast, then don't fast, but get back to it when you're, you know, you get back to it. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. 16, 18 hours is sort of a sweet spot to be in because it allows you to sort of jump up into that higher range if you need it. And if you don't, then hey, you just fall back into that sort of rhythm. Well, great. I want to go back to your study again, because I didn't, I don't know if it was written in the report, but if it was, I, I missed it. I didn't realize you were fasting them for 24 hours, three times a week. And I'm wondering why you chose that as opposed to fasting them for five days, twice a month or once a month. And, you know, and clearly there's a reason. And, and I'm very curious as to the logic behind it. Yeah, so 24 hours is something that most people can do um, uh, because we, we do this in hospital all the time. If people need a colonoscopy, if they need surgery, you can't eat for 24 hours prior. So we know that we can do that for almost everybody. The other advantage is, so you can do 16 hours, um, and I think people will do well, but because they were a more severe um, group of people, they were, you know, long-standing type 2 diabetic, they had been on high doses of, they, they were on high dose of insulin, you can't use a very, if you, if you don't use a strong enough sort of regimen, then you're not going to get the results that you want. 24 hours is a good uh, starting place for some of those patients because then it still allows you to eat once a day. So if you go dinner to dinner or lunch to lunch, that's like 23, 24 hours, or some people call it one meal a day. And the reason that's good is that a lot of them are on, on other medications where they need to take food or they get a little bit nauseous or whatever. So that's sort of an in-between the sort of long uh, fast, like extended day fasting, multiple days, which I think works very well too. And there are definitely times we will use that as well. But you have to sort of uh, tweak it to where people are. Like um, it's, it's interesting because people – 
you know, in the old days, in the 60s, when they did studies on fasting, they were talking about 30 to 60 days of fasting, which is like a lot. And of course, a few people actually died and it gave everybody a bad name through the whole thing. It's like, but you go from where 30 days of fasting is considered a fast to where people think that more than three hours is a fast, right? So it's like, you know, people are like, oh, you can't go between breakfast and lunch without eating. I'm like, yeah, you can so this is sort of an intermediate. It's acceptable to most people. It's easy to fit in a lot of people's schedules because these people were younger, so they're all working. And it still allows them um, to eat every day so that they can do that for whatever you know other medications they're taking or if they have a bit of heartburn or whatever, um, that benefits them. So you know, for those reasons, from a logistical standpoint, it works uh, very well. But other, other regimens work equally well. It all depends on the person and individualizing it. Well, interestingly, anecdotally, I came to the same conclusion because I was convinced at this time last year, maybe a little earlier, that the single most powerful metabolic intervention was multiple water day fasting. And then I I wrote, I'm writing a book too. It's going to be out in May. Your book, The Longevity Solution, will be out at the end of February. My book comes out three months later. My book is called Keto Fast. So I was researching this and I really came to the conclusion after putting the, the, the reviews together that it's not probably a good idea multiple day water fasting for a wide variety of the reasons but one of the primary ones is that we are have this massive exposure to environmental toxins that we didn't have in the last century for the most part it's just massive and these are mostly for the most part fat soluble they're stored in our fat cells and we fast we hopefully are metabolically flexible at burning fat and, it, and in the process of liberating that fat we've we, we eliminate these toxins. And if our body doesn't have fuel or uh, nutrients to break them down and essentially process them so they can be eliminated, then we can have a lot of the side effects of fasting, which I believe may be related more to the liberated toxins than the actual side effects of fasting. So that's why I thought that the multiple multi-day water fast is not even a, is not a good idea. And it actually I don't even think a water fast is a good idea. So I've, I've came to the conclusion that it should be a partial fast. We have like four or 500 calories, well, three to 700 calories based on your body weight, but only on top of doing the 16 to 18 hour compressed eating window so that you're going in there with depleted glycogen stores and essentially only having a few hundred calories for 42 hours, you know, which is a, because when I do that, I notice that that second day I'll lose three to five pounds invariably every time I do that. And I do it, tw- I mean, the benefit, here's the big benefit is that you can do it twice a week, twice yeah. a week, you know, and that's, what, and that's my typical strategy unless I'm traveling or something, but twice a week you can do that. So you can get a hundred days of partial fasting in the year where there's no way you're going to come close to that with a, with a regular water fast. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I agree. I mean, I started out using a lot of longer fasts, and they still we still use them, but less than before. Uh, they're great for very severely metabolically deranged people. But if you're not one of these people, so uh, I'll tell you the, the the places that we do use them in the in the clinic is, for example, when somebody is uh, huge doses of insulin, um, you know, very overweight and they've got end organ damage where I need to get that sugar down sort of very quickly because, uh, you know, we have people say with, um, you know, we had this guy with, um, with a, a non-healing diabetic foot ulcer 
and I had seen them in the hospital actually. And uh, I knew it hadn't healed for a year. They're just changing the bandages and stuff. And uh, they weren't doing anything about his diabetes, of course. So I knew that thing and I admitted him, I gave him antibiotics. And I said, okay, antibiotics are gonna take care of it, but that's not gonna take care of your diabetes. Your diabetic foot ulcer is due to your diabetes. And that's a situation where we went in with a really, you know, hard guns to say, okay, we got to get that diabetes down because you're going to lose your foot. They're going to, somebody's going to chop off that foot. Um, so that's a situation and that's an extreme situation that calls for sort of more extreme measures. And so we still use them in situations where we really want to get people down. And I still think it's a useful therapeutic tool for, you know, to do every so often. It sort of resets the body a little bit. Uh, some of the some of the research coming out of, um, you know, uh, San Diego is suggesting, for example, that for immune systems, some of the longer fast might be a bit more beneficial. But for the most part, I agree with you. We, we mostly go towards the shorter fast, um, even the partial fast, you know, the, the 24, 36 hour fast as well. The 42 hour fast with a little bit, I, I think is a perfect strategy as well. They're all variations. And what people mm -hmm. need to do is find out what the best thing to do for them is. But I, I totally agree with you. I think we've sort of moved a little bit more towards the sort of more frequent short fast. And, and it, it, the continuity is good because people build it into their schedule, right? So it's like this day is, you know, Monday, and this is the day I don't eat lunch, or Mondays and Thursdays, or whatever. And when you get into a routine, that's when it becomes automatic. And that's really important from a habit standpoint to say that, okay, this is the day that this happens. So now you don't have to expend any effort to say, okay, tomorrow's a fast day, you know, or, oh, I forgot it was a fast. It's like, hey, it's every week comes up the same thing, right, over and over again. You don't have to think about it any more than you have to think about brushing your teeth, right? It's not an effort. Oh, did I, you know, should I brush my teeth today? It's like, that's not the, that's not the point. You can, you can just go ahead and do it and, and, and it'll automatically be there for you. So I think, you know, for, for those reasons too, I think that it's, it's a perfect, it, it's a great strategy uh, to use. Yeah. I just love the cycling components yeah. and the, the way I've strategized, especially twice a week, it, it, uh, you know, you won't. You don't want to do, build, do strength training or resistance training every day. I mean, that's insanity. It'll get you into some deep weeds pretty quickly. <laughs> so, uh, the, the, what I've noticed is that you can recover quite incredibly well when you are in a partial fast. So, and, and there are some biometrics that you can take, like your heart rate. Your lowest heart rate at night will occur earlier in the night, which means you are more recovered, and you'll get more deep sleep and more REM sleep, and then you'll be better able uh, the day after your partial fast where you can eat a lot of calories, to, that was, that's your strength training day. It's, so you don't want to be strength training on the day that you're partial fasting. You want to combine the, you know, to cycle in appropriate though. It's a really good strategy. But here's the other good thing, because most people watching this uh, fly, maybe in a, occasionally, but some more than, than, significantly more than occasionally. And there's a danger that occurs when you fly that we're, we're at 35,000 feet and we're exposed to ionizing radiation, which can damage our DNA. It's well documented that Flight attendant crew or flight crews have 30% increased risk of cancer because of this exposure. So one of the most powerful things you can do doesn't, again, it's less than free, is to not eat. That's your partial fast day and your ketone levels will rise and these high ketone levels do magic. So much magic that NASA is evaluating them exogenous ketones for the astronauts because they work yeah. so well. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a lot of data on, uh, like people are very excited about the exogenous ketones. Like really you want, if you're overweight particularly, you want mm -hmm. endo endogenous, that is you right. want to produce ketones from your fat cells because you want to get rid of the fat and make the ketones. But for those people who don't, like so I, I know there's people who are doing research for the Department of Defense and all this sort of stuff to give them that sort of extra edge, that extra protection. Sure. And these are people you don't want to lose weight. So they take exogenous ketones, they take ketone supplements and athletes and so on. So a lot of uh, sort of exciting stuff coming out uh, about about how the body uses ketones. Yeah, it's great. So, uh, but I think that key thing when you're not eating before you travel, it's a simple strategy, you know, and you don't have to eat because there's almost no airline that's going to serve you healthy food. You can almost <laughs> that's a guarantee. It's only going to be highly processed food that's not good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Limit your abilities and create these ketones. It'll kick you out of nutritional ketosis. Yeah, that's for sure. And and there's some people who also uh, suggest that uh, the jet lag is not as bad and so on. Some anecdotal stories and stuff. Uh, people find that it's not as bad when they're fasting and so on because, of course, um, you know, one of the things that sort of keeps us in our rhythm is sort of breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So if you fast, you sort of, you know, it doesn't matter so much if, if, if you lose six hours or gain six hours because you're not eating anyway. So the moment that you start eating, you sort of get back into cycle. So people find that the jet lag is another benefit of the fasting. So they'll fast during their travel days and then be able to sort of jump right back and they find that that's a lot easier for them. Yeah, especially if you're flying internationally. Domestically, it's not as much of a challenge, but clearly that's an issue. So yeah. there's a lot of hormonal shifts that occur during fasting, and I want you to address two, two questions I have for you. One is to, to, to discuss the growth hormone that you mentioned in your book, because there's, it's sort of paradoxical. Growth hormone, which actually would appear to stimulate mTOR, actually increases when you fast, but we know that mTOR is suppressed during fasting. So why don't you describe what happens there? And I've got a follow-up question with respect to women. Yeah, so the growth hormone question is really interesting because it does seem paradoxical. Why would your body make all this growth hormone if you've got nothing to eat? And it's actually because the um, so growth hormone acts through the liver to produce IGF-1. So that's insulin-like growth factor one. So the, the normal thing is growth hormone goes up. It's made in the pituitary in the brain. In the liver, um, it goes, uh, it becomes, um, so you have growth hormone receptors and it produces insulin-like growth factor one, which actually mediates all the effects of growth hormone. So if you knock out IGF-1, for example, and give growth hormone, it actually has no effect. Um, during fasting and calorie restriction as well, what happens is that the liver actually downregulates the growth hormone uh, receptor in the liver so that the growth hormone level goes way up, but your body's not that um, receptive to it. And therefore, the, uh, there's not a lot of IGF-1 going on. So that's very interesting because then when you eat again, this is when that big surge of growth hormone can start to hit you and then you can start to rebuild all your muscle and so on. So if you look at a lot of the data from you know studies, I think there was just another one that came out about fasting uh, versus calorie restriction just like a week and a half ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association. What they find, of course, is that everybody worries about lean mass you know, being uh, drawn down, but in fact, they don't find it at all when people are following these sort of short intermittent fasting schedules. So the growth hormone story is a really interesting one because this is, you know, if you look at fasting, the growth hormone levels 
you know, within 24 hours, it's like two to three times what it was before. In a five-day fast, it's up, you know, near four times. So it, you get this huge spike. And then when your body starts to be able to respond to it normally, that's when you'll start to uh, build up what you need to build up. And that's, that's this again, this sort of um, rejuvenation process, this sort of anti-aging process. So do those growth hormones remain elevated for a while? Because that would even lend further support to yeah. multiple partial fasting because you're going to elevate yeah. your growth hormone. It stays high. And then you're, so you do that and then you enter your strength training day and you have with high growth hormone and you're not paying for it. It's for free because your body's making it and you get all the benefits of it. Yeah, exactly. That's what people do with this sort of training in the fasted state is they fast for 18, 24 hours, get the high growth hormone levels, train, and then they eat. And then that's when you got the big growth hormone surge and what they found also is that when you exercise, your body becomes more responsive to this growth, of course, because it, it wants to rebuild, mm -hmm. but it lasts for like 48 hours. So that, wow. that effect of the exercise, like you don't have to eat before you exercise. You can exercise and then any time, you know, within the next sort of 24 to 48 hours, if you eat a lot of protein or whatever, you're going to have that sort of rebuilding because the growth hormone is there, you know, the body's in that state where it's trying to rebuild. So definitely, uh, you know, there's more research, I'm sure that's going to come, but this sort of, um, you know, this sort of cycle makes perfect sense to do multiple sort of shorter wow. fasts uh, in that week. I had no idea. That's absolutely magnificent that this growth hormone remains elevated for that amount of time. So you can really get a huge benefit from that and a natural benefit. And, and, it, and it falls into the cycling pattern because you, the last thing you ever want to do is have, have continuously elevated growth hormone. It's a prescription for yeah. disaster. But yeah. the cycling and peaking. Cycling up and down, yeah. Well, when you eat, it goes down, but it stays up when you're fasting, and then it goes down when you eat again. So doing it a couple times a week gets you, gets you set up perfectly because the hormones have to be um, pulsatile. Like that's the way our body uses hormones. You don't keep something up all the time when you do like insulin. It's a natural hormone, but keep it up all the time and you're in big trouble. mTOR, same, right? It, it hits and then you, you want to you want it down, right? You want to do the growth and then you want to get into this maintenance thing. Just like revving your engine. Don't rev your engine all the time, but revving it when you're, you know, trying to accelerate is a good thing, right? So it's all a question of context. You want to hit it and then drop it down. And that's the same thing with uh, growth hormone. It's the same thing with mTOR. It's the same with insulin. All of these keep it pulsatile. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the other concerns for hormones would be women. They uh, uh, express concern on a regular basis that they have adrenal stress and that women are particularly prone to it and that fasting may not be as beneficial for them or intermittent fasting. So I'm sure you get this question all the time and I'm wondering what your response is. You know, uh, more than half of the people we see in our clinic, in the IDM clinic, are women. And, you know, they have problems, but so do the men. <laughs> um, they don't have any more or less problems than the men. And if you look at the data, uh, it's exactly the same. Like, you can look at the women, you can look at the men. They do roughly the same. So, you know, if, in terms of rate of weight loss and so on. So some people say, oh, you know, I can't lose weight at all. And because I'm a postmenopausal woman, but we have 50 year old guys who are the same. They're like, they can't lose weight at all either. 
and then they're obviously not postmenopausal. So yes, there are problems. It doesn't work for everybody. Sometimes you really have to tweak it, and sometimes it's it's a totally different thing. So one of the things, um, for example, is uh, cortisol or stress. I mean, that really hampers your ability to lose weight. Uh, you know, in um, in medicine, we can give a synthetic form of uh, cortisol, which is prednisone, and it's used a lot for a lot of autoimmune diseases. It's been used for a long time. And of course, weight gain is one of the major, major side effects of that. So if you're increasing cortisol because of chronic pain, you know, that's your problem, not the diet. So changing your diet is not necessarily going to do you all that good. Fasting, of course, is a stress on the body, uh, just like exercise is a stress. So your, your body gets better uh, by coping with it. And it's the same thing, just as you said, you don't do sort of strength training every single day. It's the same thing. Fasting is, is a stress on the body. And by exposing yourself to a sort of mild stress every day, your body gets stronger and healthier. Um, but you don't want to be there sort of like all the time. So it's the same thing. Fasting can actually increase cortisol, for example, because it's part of the general activation. So this is where it's, it's useful. For most people, it's going to be a very, very good um, treatment. But understanding a bit about fasting and knowing the medical uh, physiology allows you to sort of tweak it. Is it better to do long? Is it better to go short? Uh, these sort of things. All right. One question on the on amino acid supplementation, specifically glycine that your co-author James has recommended actually encouraged me to consider. And I've been doing it for over a year now. I do about a gram twice a day for a variety of reasons. One is to, it's a component of glutathione. So it's a raw material that, that's required for glutathione synthesis. But, um, it also has many other benefits. It's part of collagen protein, so it's good yeah. for your connective tissue. And I'm wondering if what your thoughts are on the glycine, if you've integrated into your personal protocol and what your dosage and maybe to, uh, discuss some of the other benefits. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's certain um, amino acids and there's sort of that, that may be more beneficial than others. I don't use uh, supplements in general, but one of the things that um, the glycine is one of the ones that I would probably consider. Now, the other thing is trying to get it naturally from your food. So if you look at traditional Chinese foods or Asian foods, for example, um, the tendon, for example, beef tendon is like standard. Like I love beef tendon. And, uh, you know, if you look at beef broth where you take all the bones and you take all the joints and you just boil them all down, get all that glycine and all that stuff in there. I mean, it's like my mother-in-law, she makes soup every single day. Like it's, it's just part of eating. You drink your soup, right? And, and it's always with the bones. It's always with the chicken feet and it's always with those uh, parts that are going to be very, very high in it. And, um, you know, when I talk to my mom and she's like, oh, she's like, oh, my arthritis is acting up. So they get all these, you know, you know, it's like the beef joints and all this pig joints and they always boil it up and they always say, yeah, it feels better. And it's, a, it's the same idea the, that stuff, which is in the collagen, it may be highly beneficial. And I always think, I think there was a lot of sort of ancient wisdom in what people did. Like they didn't do it because they're silly. They did it because they had noticed a benefit for a lot of these things. Like for arthritis, for example, they felt better. So therefore they kept doing it. And these sort of time-tested ideas just kind of wound themselves through and, and, and became sort of culinary traditions. And so we still have a lot of those. Like people, um, you know, you, when you do the broth, you get that sort of 
you know how you, you put it in the yeah. fridge and it turns into like a jello, right? And, and that's yeah. all the proteins and stuff. And it's like, that's, that's the collagen, yeah. yeah, that's the good stuff, right? That's, that's what you want your soup to be like. So I think I try and get it naturally through the foods, but uh, certain, certain, um, you know, cuisines, it's much easier to do that. Yeah, the typical American diet, uh, the, the use of connective tissue in the diet has dropped dramatically over the last generation yeah. or two. It used to be pretty common. In fact, uh, Jell-O, common dessert when I was growing yeah. up, has collagen in it, no question. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but the, most of us aren't getting it through our diet. You know, not, we, we're, you know especially non-Asians where this is not part of the regular, regular cuisine. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you know, it's, so it's you know, collagen protein would be something to consider if you're not having a lot of connective tissue. And I think the dietary approach is the best if you if you're able to do it. But it's not the easiest thing to do. Yeah, like we like we eat the, um, you know, the 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 little collagen in between the the bones and stuff. Like mm -hmm. my mom's like, oh, why are you throwing that away? I'm like. Yeah, because most American diets, you eat like the ribeye, right? <laughs> like, but I, you know, because I'm, I'm sort of in between them. I actually still like a lot of that stuff, beef tendon and stuff. My kids don't like it, but I'm like, that's the good stuff, right? <laughs> now, I, the other uh, cultural components, you mentioned in the book that most of the world actually drinks tea as their primary beverage. And I yeah. wonder if you do and, and uh, what your recommendations are in that. Yeah, for tea, there's so many benefits. One, I think that the, for green tea, for example, people get very excited about the catechins, which is, uh, you know, the ECGC. And green tea has has more than, say, black tea, for example. Um, in China, oolong tea is the most common, which is a semi-fermented tea, and then you get into black tea. The problem with black tea sometimes is that people tend to put sugar in it, which is going to make not so good. So if you look at in England, for example, you put it cream and sugar, and it's like, okay, well, that's not what they do in Japan. Like nobody puts cream and sugar into their tea. <laughs> so um, there's other ways to try and increase the amount of catechins. So there's this uh, one uh, company, Peak Tea, which makes these crystals, which are great. I actually drink it almost every day. And they use a cold brew crystallization, so they get almost triple the amount of catechins in the green tea compared to a typical hot brew green tea. And it's super convenient. It's an individual package. So you just put it in, you put some water in and it's hot or cold water for some of this and, and gives you this amazing uh, tea right off the bat. So that's one way to sort of incorporate it, try and get more of the catechins in. Um, you know, if you look at Asian uh, traditions, it's, you know, you don't just buy tea at the coffee shop, you know, and pay a buck 50. You have like tea leaves that you just sort of steep over and over. And, and, and that's how it's easy to drink tea. Um, the, uh, that's what I used to do all the time. I just have the, the, the tea leaves in a little thing and the, in, in the cup. And then you just keep pouring water, hot water into it and, and re-steeping it every time. So that's how you get into it. And of course, that winds up displacing a lot of the other drinks, like the, the juices and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that's going to be very healthy for you. And, and, and the, the, the other teas, the black teas have different ones. They have theoflavins instead of uh, the green teas, which have different ones because they get fermented into the theoflavins. There's a lot of data suggesting that maybe those are highly beneficial. If you look at populations, there's all these uh, studies of people who drink more tea tend to have less overall mortality in terms of heart and so on, green tea and cancer, that, all those 
sort of benefits. And again, it's, 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 it's something that's very, very low cost. I mean, you can go to anywhere and buy a big pack of tea leaves for almost, you know, no money. It's a few bucks, right? It's, it's not expensive. Uh, you can get the regular uh, black tea, a huge pack of tea bags for like five bucks, right? So it's not, this is why people don't, you, nobody's making money, right? You know, people want to sell you this expensive, you know, nut milks and kombucha. And it's like one thing is like five bucks. It's like I get a whole package of tea bags for $5, right? Um, so tea, I think, is one of the underappreciated sorts of things. And I think it's just a part of a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. So that's a great example of an inexpensive strategy to improve your likelihood of reaching a long age healthy. So we've discussed some of the others, in the, in, but as we're nearing the end of the interview, I want to make sure that there's not any major pearls of wisdom that I'm missing that you can share with us now. Um, no, I think that's it. So we, we go through, I think this is a really, um, you know, the book itself, I think is fantastic. It's, it goes through everything sort of in a shorter form. If you want to get more information on fasting, you can go to the complete guide to fasting. If you want to get more information on salt, for example, you can go to James's other book, the salt fix. If you want to go get more information about healthy fats, you can go to your book with, uh, James, the super fats or fat for fuel, for example. So it's, it's, sort of like a, you know, like a greatest hits sort of album, you know, it's, there's a little bit of information about salt, like there's a whole chapter about salt and magnesium and so on. But if you want a whole book, you can go to the salt fix. There's a, there's a chapter on fasting, but if you want the whole thing, you can go to the complete guide to fasting. If you want to talk about salt, you can go to, uh, sorry, about fat, you can talk, uh, go to uh, super fuel. So it's, it's, it's sort of a synthesis of all that. And then what we do is we look at the blue zones, which is sort of these uh, long lived populations and try and say, look, you know, these, these are healthy populations and see how they stack up with these sort of simple ideas that we, we put out there uh, for healthy living. And we also look at this very interesting study called the REGARD study, which looked at the Southern diet, which is the, the Southern United States. Turns out that that diet highly, highly <laughs> detrimental. <laughs> and we say why, right? It's a lot of processed foods, a lot of processed meats, processed fats, high in salt, but not good because it's just because it's all processed, um, you know, not fresh food sort of thing. So, uh, you know, and, and, and what we can learn from that and sort of what that tells us about how to sort of live uh, to age well, right? That's the whole goal is not to live long uh, with a lot of disability. It's to age well. That's the whole point. Sounds great. All right. So the book is The Longevity Solution. It's on sale now. And if you, or will be, you can just go to Amazon and look for it. Uh, if you like the information that Dr. Funk shared with you here, you're going to find more of the same in the book. And I'd encourage you to pick it up and give it a read. So thank you so much for being with us today and sharing the, your insights on how to optimize health with these specific strategies because it's enormously simple but the devil's in the details and you help uh, greatly sharing some of those details with us today. Thank you so much.